Hello, Horror Fanatics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast, Oh! The Horror! Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, or follow, or send Carrier Pigeon to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address at OTH at SeriouslyDecent.com. You can also go to our website, OhTheHorrorPodcast.com. You can connect to your favorite platform. We're on just about all of them. And if we're not on one you want to hear us on, let us know. Let us know and we'll connect to it. Yeah. And then when you connect to it, you could do what everyone else should do. Connect can, through, do a sweet five-star review. Yeah, you're you right know. there. You're right there. You just, uh, yeah. just lean a little. Yeah. yeah. You can check out our back catalog on there, seasons one, two, and catch up on three. Absolutely. You can connect to our social media stuff, check out our bios, and whammo, I did the intro. Woo! Because I know how to read. Read. (laughs) Hook it on phonics, work it for Frank. Hook it on phonics, work it for me. I don't know, man. We're not going to sell many tapes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian Reed. Uh, so, what a weekend. What a weekend. We started out Saturday. We had the planned outage here. Yeah. and uh, 10 hours that, with electricity. That started uh, right at 7. It was 7, right? 7, on the yeah, dot. on the dot. Yeah. Power went down. Yep. 10 hours. Yep. You know, weather was good. It was good. Had good breakfast. When we finally got it. Holy cow. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We walk in. The place is slammed because it's the next town over. Yeah. So So everybody from our town went for breakfast, you know. And we all uh, had the same idea. Well, yeah. You know, we'll go to the diner for breakfast. (laughs) We can't make it. So they're frazzled because they've had more customers that day than they've had in the last six years. No. Our waitress was frazzled. The other waitress well, was no. like, eh, all right. Yeah, it's and they were a happy. busy day. <laughs> yeah. So then she comes up and she's like, hi, my name's Jenny. And I'm like thinking, all right, yeah. we got a Jen in the house. This is going to work. No. So then you and I do what we do best. This right here. Yes. Start chatting. Yeah. Yap, 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 yap. Talking about yep. this, talking about yep. that. Yep. And. We're talking a long time. I and here's the funny part. Five sets of customers come in, eat, and leave before we even got our breakfast. But the funny part is, it's <laughs> like you, I saw that, but I was just so into what we were yeah. talking about. And then like the food came and you were like, yeah, that did take a while. And she's like, sorry. And I'm looking, I'm like, yeah, because wait. Then I started rolling tape and I was mm-hmm. like, the couple next to us uh-huh. walked in. Yeah. They got their food and they were just about almost done when we got ours. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like we got an extravagant deal. I got a breakfast burrito yep. and you got two eggs and uh, toast and bacon, right? Yeah. 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 Couldn't have been easier. So the funny part of that is, is we eat. Mm-hmm. I end up feeling terrible because she's having a bad day. So what do I do? I give her a big tip. Mm-hmm. I, I don't regret it. She was she was a mess. 
She was. She was almost as much of a mess. Remember when we were in 99? Oh, my God. And that girl <laughs> left us. And she came out and she's like, oh, my God, I forgot you guys were oh my in God, here. I, I was, forgot you were in here. I was feeling tartar sauce. Tartar sauce, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you'd think. <laughs> you would think that she would have been on top of us the rest of the day. Nay, no. nay. No. She, I remember I saw her over there and she was wrapping silverware. Yep. Putting in a bus uh, a, a bus thing mm-hmm. and uh, a silverware tray. And then she looked and she was like, oh, yeah, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think that was her. I think that was her first day waiting tables and her last. Well, all at the same time. I went to the manager at the Cracker Barrel. Yeah. Gave him her, her description and her name. <laughs> and I was like, if she applies to be a waitress here, I'm going to tell you, just say no. Yeah. Because she was our waitress at 99 and it was abysmal. I like how you gave a description. I did. You know. Yeah. Because, I mean, how many Tammies come in? Who knows how many he could get in a day? And I was like, no. Oh, my God. No. Oh. Yeah. No. Yeah, so then we go through our day. Mm-hmm. Great day. Yeah, Had do our things. Then we go to Fart Goblin for lunch. For those of you who don't know, that's Poomper and Nickel <laughs> together. <laughs> we go to Pumpernickel. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, like, we go there. We get the table. Yep. We sit down. Mm-hmm. You ordered a burger. I got a bacon cheeseburger. Yeah, and I got a uh, chicken parm sandwich, which I learned that day that you can have those every day. Yeah, my my nephew Jack says yeah. you can have a chicken parm sandwich every day. Every day. I yeah. didn't know that. That's great. So, guys, so I started. I don't know if you know, but my nephew Jack swears that you can have a chicken parm sandwich every day. And I mean, I believe him. No, but we did that at what? Like 3 Two, three o'clock, I think we had. had no, that. it was like 140. Or 140, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah. It was it was a long day. It was you a know, long day. Trying to fill it yeah. with things. So so we had that at 140. And I remember we were talking, like we gave our order yeah. and all that. And then it seemed like 30 seconds later, they're the in front of us. There. And I was like, oh my God, this is quick. And you're like, yeah, because it's good service. <laughs> and they had signs everywhere. We are short staffed. Yeah. Please. Please be prepared for longer wait time. Longer times. wait time. Yeah. Your patience is appreciated, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, so cheers to the cheers to the the wait staff at Fart Goblin. Yes, that's uh. Congratulations, then, ladies! Just the two of you, and you out service. Yeah, Jenny. Jenny. Yes. Yeah. So so then we get home at four mm-hmm. on the nose. Mm-hmm. We walk through the door, the power power comes comes back on. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the perfectly planned day. It was. It It was was beautiful. It was amazing. And then. It was a sight to behold. We go to sleep and I kiss you goodnight and you go, oh, chicken parm. And I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) It was 10 hours ago. You literally, like, it was chicken parm. It was undeniable. (laughs) There was no mistaking it. (sighs) Oh, my God. Like, each component 
was was represented. I was like, yeah, that's a hundred percent chicken parm. You housing that burger though was fit. That was fine work. I know your move. I know when a burger's going down when you order it, and and you shove the fries aside. You assemble the burger. I do. You put some, you, you grab, you got it in one hand and you get the ketchup and you the squirt other. it. Yep. And then you do, you get the two hands like you're going to bite it. Yep. But and then you, you flip it. No, you flip it and put the front down and you dip it in the ketchup. And I look, and once I see that move, I'm like, that burger is going to be gone a in a minute. Yeah. And you rack that thing down. I did. I housed <laughs> that burger and then I turned to you and I was like, I'm not even sure I tasted that. <laughs> There's no way you could have. The best part is the waitress comes and she's, oh, hey, how's it? Wow. How's it going? I got like two bites out of my chicken parm sandwich. Meanwhile, my burger's you, gone. You cleared your burger. It's, there's, it's just not even there. You don't even know a burger was on the plate. You'd never know. No, you would have thought you just ordered some fries. French fries, pickles, and some coleslaw. That's all I ordered. Oh, it was great. Uh, It was great. It was a good day. How about the podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what we're doing, Episode 122. Yeah. Season 3. Yeah. Scientology, the Sea Org. Gotta tell you. We got one more part after this. Gotta tell you, this was tough for me because See, the you know, Sea Org fascinates the living crap out of me. That's that's not what it was. Yeah. For me, I was riding high off of the miracles of Medjugorje. Yeah. And then I had to deal with the floating turd. L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and like just the thought of getting into his shit again. The escapades of the yeah, Apollo crew. I was like, oh yeah. No. Thank you. Uh, I, yeah. I tell you what, the Sea Org fascinates the living beings out of me. I think it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because it really, no, the Sea Org alone dots all the I's and crosses all the T's of cults. Like yes. all the ingredients of a it cult. It starts with your billion year contract. Yeah. What? Yeah. Excuse me? But it even starts before there. And we'll yeah. get we'll get yeah. into it. But uh for sources, I had Bareface Messiah by Russell Miller. We used him primarily as the uh, a, a, a big a source, source for, for L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology by Mike Rinder. I had both of those, too. Did that well. Uh, I had to give credit where credit's due, Scientology.org. I went there, checked out about the Sea Org and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, uh, we're going to get more into the psychology of what was going on in there. Okay. And uh, I use some articles from uh, Simply Psychology. Okay. Just kind of basic overall yeah. concepts of things. You know, what yeah. do you got for sources? Just uh, a billion years. A billion years. My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology by Mike Rinder. Excellent book. I'm halfway through it and I absolutely love it. It's a great read. But the beginning is so, so sad. Oh, it's so heartbreaking because he starts it with an open letter to his children. Who are still in it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and have basically severed ties with him. Well, yeah. I you mean, know. he's a suppressive person, so yeah. they had to uh, cut off contact with yeah. him. No, and, oh, it's, it's crazy. It is. It's, it's horrible. 
and Barefaced Messiah, the true story of L. Ron Hubbard by Russell Miller. Yeah. Those were my, my only two sources. Okay. So at this point, we're going to throw the disclaimer out. Dear Scientology, Scientologists, if you disagree with what we're uh, going to talk about today, please feel free to send a statement. We'll read it at the pre-roll of this, uh, you know, so you can get your, your piece out. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that, we're going to go through uh, what we got. I would like to say to Scientology, how can you believe this shit? <laughs> I, it's amazing. Put that in your open letter. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, well, you, but you, you know look this at this guy lied about everything, right? Yeah. The tough part is, is you got people that are born into it. For them, and, I feel bad because well, and I honestly, think that's what you're dealing with they now. They didn't have a choice. I think that's what you're dealing with now. You're dealing with the people that are born into it. And then you're dealing with the people that we'll get into more mm-hmm. on the psycho, you know, the psychological part of it. But from the horse's mouth, I went on Scientology.org. Mm-hmm. You're a bigger man than me. You know, well, you know, I'll give him the clicks. Why not? I thought what was really funny is, you know, I brought up earlier how David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology, yeah. uh, was basically running from a, uh, uh, he was getting served. Yeah, and he kept, no one could find him to serve him. Yeah. So they so just made the general announcement. Federal, Do we have an update on that? Federal lawsuit uh, that accused him of human trafficking. Yes, yes. Then they just kind of said it out loud. You've been served. Yeah. I found that interesting because, uh, you know, that was back in, you know, February. Yeah. They started talking yep. about that. Well, lo and behold, first sighting in six months, Scientology leader David Miscavige's Spotted at LRH birthday event. He spoke for three hours. I couldn't even imagine listening to that guy for three hours. Now, here's the funny part. I look at the slideshow mm-hmm. on uh, Scientology.org. Mm-hmm. and uh, I bet his best friend, Tom Cruise, drove him there. Oh, here's the funny part. This is where I got to okay. laugh at. So it's LRH, guy who found everything. He's yeah. like, he's the God. He's yeah. the Messiah, you mm-hmm. know. So they have a slideshow of the mm-hmm. birthday thing and all the stuff. Yeah. First three slides or four were about LRH. And then and the every, rest were everything else were about David, David Miscavige, Miscavige and where he's taking Scientology. <laughs> I was like, there's your sign right there. God, he's such an egotistical narcissist. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it's the guy's birthday. He might birthday. even be a sociopath. Yeah. And, and of course, you would think LRH's birthday, everybody would be there, right? You see the slideshow on Scientology.org? I didn't see Touchdown Tommy Cruz. I didn't see Maverick. Maverick wasn't there? I, I, I mean, he might have been there, but he wasn't on the slideshow. You know, I think. How would the guy who's their biggest ambassador not make it to the slideshow? I, how is he not on the slideshow? You know who wasn't there either? Travolta. No way. No way. Mahia. Mahia. Not there. Yeah. Huh. No. Nothing. Huh. Weird. It is weird. You know, two biggest, biggest, uh, you know, names. MIA. Yeah. I didn't at uh, LRH's. I didn't see any Hollywood birthday stars party. there. Yeah, yeah. They were probably waiting for invitations to my birthday party, yeah. which no. you, everyone knows there's that probably, L. Ron Hubbard and I share the same birthday. There's going to be a VIP party. You know, it's going to be all eyes wide shut and shit. Oh, you know? yeah, probably. You know, you well, eat like this and they scrub yeah. fucking floors with toothbrushes and no they don't do that 
Yeah, actually, they do. <laughs> not the celebrities. No, no, the not, celebrities don't. Not one bit. So I go on their site, and yep. I'm thinking, all right, what does Scientology got to say? say? What do they got to say about the Sea Org? Yeah, I'm interested. After all, all right. of the Sea Org whistleblowers, yeah. what does it say? Yeah, you know, all the podcasts you can hear, yeah. we're not the only game in town. No, we're not. You know, but here we are. It's a bit lengthy, but I'll plow through it. The C organization is a religious order for the Scientology religion and is composed of the singularly, singularly most dedicated Scientologists, individuals who have committed their lives to the volunteer service of their religion. The C organization is a fraternal religious order and is not incorporated. Members of the C organization are therefore wholly responsible to the Church of Scientology, to which they are assigned and are responsible as are all other staff to officers and directors of that church. The C organization was established in 1967 and once operated from a number of ships. It was formed to assist L. Ron Hubbard with advanced research operations and, sur- and supervise church organizations around the world. The C organization is entrusted to minister the advanced services of Scientology. The C organization retains its traditional name, Although today, the majority of its members are based on land. In keeping with the tradition of the order's inception, however, they still wear maritime-style uniforms and have ranks and ratings. The Sea Organization Motor Vessel Freewinds is entirely staffed by members of the Sea Organization. Utilizing the training materials developed by L. Ron Hubbard in the early days of the Sea Organization, the Freewinds has the best safety and service record of any ship in the Caribbean. As volunteers and members of a religious order, Sea Organization members work long hours and live communally with housing, meals, uniforms, medical and dental care, transport, and all expenses associated with their duties provided by the church. They also receive an allowance to purchase personal items as all uh, all of their other expenses are fully covered by the church. Sea organization members participate in Scientology training and auditing during a portion of each day, but otherwise dedicate themselves to furthering the objectives of Scientology through their particular functions. Positions in the Sea organization are analogous to that of members of religious orders and other religions. They are at the forefront of spearheading the church's massive social mis- mission including the world's largest non-governmental drug education campaign, the largest human rights education campaign, and many other global program that touches the lives of millions. Sea organization members are acutely aware of the world in which they live, as their service is dedicated to helping mankind. They do not live cloistered lives, but are very much a part of society. Today, some 5,000 members of the Sea Organization hold staff positions in upper-level Scientology church organizations around the world, ensuring the religion is available to the millions of Scientology parishioners who live and work outside the church. I should have read that in, like, the voice of David Miscavige, because it's like, so is tone. I'm so glad you didn't. so is tone, Because seriously, just to hear him speak, I want to take needles and shove them into my eardrums so that I don't hey, have to hear anymore. Easy, that's Maverick's BFF. You know, can't. How about? <laughs> how about 
the free winds has the best safety and service record of any ship in the Caribbean. I love how they're the best at everything, everything. but they don't give like a thing like, you know, yeah. what, what exactly like link, were, were you recognized? Link to you, where they got that service yeah, record. Like you, there's nothing of that. Yeah, you no, know, you just say shit. Yeah. It reminds me so much of Aleister Crowley, where you just make these profound statements. Yeah. You have nothing to back it up or support it. And everyone's like, ooh, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Everyone's eating two slices of shit pie, and they're like, could I actually have another? And they're just standing there like, yes. You can have all of my shit. Yeah. You can have all of my shit pies. Yeah. It, oh, it's so infuriating. And the fact that they get paid so that they can buy incidentals, bullshit. And the fact a lot of them actually joined the Sea Org because they were like, well, this will be the way for me to get my Scientology training. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They don't get any Scientology training. They they get audited, yeah. but that's about it. Like, well. Do you want to get to, to the work beginning? To way up the bridge. You want to get to the beginning on, on all this? or Yeah. How do you want to do it? Yeah. So Hubbard formed the Sea Org yeah. actually in 1967. They got that right. Mm -hmm. When he appointed himself Commodore. Yeah. So again, Crowley. Oh, yeah. I did this. I did this thing. So now I'm. I'm a high priest. Well, and also he did it because they were not welcome. Oh, yeah, I got more. Oh, okay. Yeah. He'd started the plans for the org the previous year while he was having his issues with the CIA and the FBI and insert governmental body. The oh. intention was he was now going to be an explorer and the Sea Org members were along for the ride to help him recover treasures from past lives. So in 66... That also happened to be the year when Hubbard, quote unquote, resigned as president of the Church in Scientology, which was effective in name only. He never truly gave up control, power, or receiving of funds from the church. I'm going to say that again. Yeah. He never truly gave up control, power, or receiving funds from the church. Hubbard was still a member of the Explorers Club, which... Seriously, Explorers Club, how did you do anything? Like, did you do any background check on this dude? So he applied for permission to carry the flag on his forthcoming <clears throat> Hubbard Geological Survey Expedition. See, it sounds so good. I know. He claimed their purpose was to collect geological surveys from Italy through Greece and Egypt mm. to the Gulf of Aden down the east coast of Africa, where they would take samples of rock types, formations, and soils will be taken in order to draw a picture of an area which has been the scene of the earlier and basic civilizations of the planet and from which some conclusions may possibly be made relating to geological dispositions requisite for civilized growth. It should be noted all of these places he is noting are all developed and all have civilizations and all have people living there. Yeah. You're not breaking any new ground, Copernicus. <laughs> like, this is already done. Yeah, but it's the illusion. See, this is where, like, he was the master of embellishment. Oh, yeah. And he was the master of tall tales to make himself seem important, experienced, and special 
So he you're... was the king of bullshit. I don't think anyone could shovel bullshit better than him. Oh, no, he's up there. Yeah. He's definitely up there. But, like, you take yourself as the Scientologist, the broken person that says, I'm going to give Scientology a try mm-hmm. because I'm desperate. Nothing else has yeah, worked. I don't think. This is my only hope. Yeah, yeah. I, Thank you. It's either this. <laughs> Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> You're my only hope. Wait, I think Star Wars might be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you get somebody, you know, because, I mean, that person that's walking through the doors of Scientology. Yeah. Or the one that reads that Dianetics book. Yeah. You're already down on your rope. Yeah. You just got to confess to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not like you've got everything dialed in. No. Banging on 18 cylinders. You know. No. Even if you do successfully in life. And I think people Mm -hmm. have to realize Mm -hmm. that. Like, you could be successful in life and spiritually be an empty well. You know, that's that's very. Very true. You know, that's a a thing that people have to look at. Mm -hmm. You know, so. You're, you're an empty spiritual well. You pick up Dianetics. You go to the headquarters mm-hmm. or the school or mm-hmm. the class or whatever, and you're you're drinking the punch. And, yeah. and and the thing is, is as we talked about with Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard, our, our previous episodes, mm-hmm. is, you know, there's good ideas in there. Right. They're yeah. sprinkled around. It's common sense. But, yeah. I mean, if you're broken, quote unquote, common yeah. sense always wins at the end of the day. Yeah. But now you're patterned in with all this given bullshit. To everyone. <laughs> it's not only yeah, it's not only you're getting this thing that helps you out, but also you're part of changing the world. Oh, you're yeah. gonna save humanity. You're clearing the planet. Yeah. So somebody who hasn't found any identification with themselves, yeah. they get into this. So now it's like this onion. And it's yeah. just instead of tearing it apart, you're putting it around yourself. Right. One layer at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're oh, I'm making I'm getting better with myself. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fix the planet. We're the only ones I'm doing gonna the fix hard work. Humanity, mm-hmm. you know, blah blah blah. And and then, you know, you build this whole uh like target where you start manufacturing these conspiracy theories. You know, and then when people go against you on those, yeah. it just further emboldens the idea that the system is against you. Yep. You're this special group, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He isn't the only one that's figured this out. No. That's why we do yeah. cults every yeah. single month. They, you know, and they just come in droves. It's amazing. Oh but for every one that goes, like five yeah. take its place. But then, it's... you know, he he had to do the Sea Org because he had to get off of land because yeah. international yeah. waters, he can't it. get yeah. arrested. But mm-hmm. he starts advertising to everybody. The Sea Org's great. The picture of the boat. Oh, and yeah, everything's yeah. amazing. Everybody's in there. Not so a now you're outfits. like, I got to get into the Sea Org because number one, I can't afford these books. But if I can go out and work on the water, yeah. and live that magnificent lifestyle and they're work talking my about, way up the bridge and work up the bridge too. Damn, sign me up. Sign Where do me I sign, up? Come Mr. On. Barry Gordy? Oh my God! <laughs> so yeah. on November twenty second. 1966, the Hubbard Exploration Company Limited was incorporated at Company's House in London. The directors were L. Ron Hubbard, dubbed as the Expedition Supervisor, and Mary Sue Hubbard as the company's secretary. Their aims were to, quote, explore ocean, seas, lakes, rivers, and waters, lands, and buildings in any part of the world, and to seek for survey, examine, and test properties of all kinds, end quote. He, of course, had no intention of doing any of those things. The true objective was to shake off the fetters of his activities and ambitions imposed by tiresome land-based bureaucracies. In other words, every time he set foot on land, 
they went after him. Yeah. His vision was of a domain of his own creation on the freedom of the high seas connected by sophisticated coded communications to its operations on land. Its purpose would be to propagate Scientology behind a screen of business management courses. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar, Nexium? Mm-hmm. Talking to you, Keith Ranieri. So by the end of 66, the Sea Org had finally purchased its first ship, the Enchanter a 40-ton seagoing schooner to further shield Hubbard. He asked his friend his friend Ray Camp or Ray Kemp to be the part owner. Shortly after the purchase of the Enchanter, Hubbard Explorational Company bought an old rusty North Sea trawler, the 414-ton Avon River, moored at Hull, a busy seaport on the northeast coast of England. Hubbard then flew to Morocco where he planned to continue his research leaving his family at St. Hill Manor in England. So before his flight, Hubbard had scribbled down instructions for various members of the Sea Project, which is what he original, uh, originally called it. Yeah. One of those people was Virginia Downsborough. She was a cheerful New Yorker who had been an auditor at St. Hill for going on about three years. She was never sure why she had been honored with an invitation to the project, unless it was because... She came from a sailing family and knew a little bit about ships and knots. Ahoy. Quote, at that time, the Sea Project was just a few of us who would get together in the garage and learn how to tie knots and read a pilot. I bought a little sailing boat and sailed it on weekends. But that's about it. Ron always worked way down the line. He knew what he intended to do, but he never laid it out for us. So... These are his people. Do you know how to maybe tie some knots? You're in. He, well, no. Here's the real funny Do you know part. what a boat is? You're in. You're in. <laughs> you mean the things on the water? Oh, my you're, goodness. Oh, my God. Yeah. You might actually be the pilot. Do you know how to cook? No? All right. You're in charge of food. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I think what's interesting about Scientology the most is you got science in the name. Yeah. And yet there's no leading scientists in Scientology. No, there's not. Not a one. And I can maybe be so bold. Yeah. Uh, Dean agrees. Yeah, you know. he's like, guys, there's actually no science in there either if you're being on. Yeah, yeah. see? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's what I just said. I think what's funny, too, mm-hmm. since we're going to talk about funny things with Scientology. Okay. I mean, that's another episode. I mean, but, isn't but, that just Scientology? <laughs> Um, (laughs) on the marquee (laughs) Scientology is funny shit show (laughs) 730 1030 and 12 (laughs) 7 stop so no I think the funny part is too they're going through all these like geology missions and you know all of this stuff and again there's no there's no lead scientist. Like you never hear that in the writings, like none of that. And everybody's like, well, no, L Ron was LRH. LRH was all you needed for everything. You know? Oh, you mean the guy who never actually graduated high school or college? He, he's the guy? He, you mean the guy that said he did all this intelligence work for the Navy when he just transcribed letters and sent them off? <laughs> <laughs> that guy? The guy who? Ron. <laughs> Ron, the, guy, the transcriptionist. The guy who 
who bombed a magnetic field in the Pacific because he was sure it was a, a submarine. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, guy? Yeah. Elron the bomb. <laughs> oh my God. Why did that never become his name? Because he was in charge <laughs> and he'd throw you in the hold. We haven't gotten to that part yet, no. but no. <laughs> spoiler alert. After he'd gone, this is still Virginia. Yeah. I was given a sealed envelope with his initials on it. Inside were my orders. I had to go to Hull, get the Enchanter ready for sea, and sail her to Gibraltar for a refit. Yeah. The chick who can tie knots and has a little sailboat that she sails on And you weekends. know the sailboat was that little sunfish one, you know, with the one sail and has the fish on it, you know. Yeah. Ron gave me a list of things he wanted from St. Hill. Mainly personal possessions and clothes, which I was to bring with me. I left for Hall the next day. Yeah. No question. No, no nothing. No, no. No. You can't do it. So scientists or Scientologists. <laughs> Easy now. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Scientologists yeah. were in the habit of simply just following Ron's orders without question. Yeah. Even if they didn't have the ability to complete said task request. Mm. None of it. So Virginia Downsboro, she held a master's degree in education and had run a child development department in a New York school before her arrival at St. Hill. Nevertheless, she set out for Hall without a second thought. No no Why hesitation, not? nothing. Why not? Lapped right in. Yeah. Quote, a lot of things needed to be done before the Enchanter was ready to sail. So I lived on the Avon River, their other boat, mm -hmm. which was moored alongside and it was absolutely filthy for a couple of weeks as the work was being completed. Mm. So you're living in horrible conditions yeah. while you're trying to refit a ship to make it whatever See, he thinks is, he wants yeah, it to be. And this is a thing like like I don't think Elrond was smart enough to figure this out. I think it all happened on accident for him and it just worked out in his favor. Mm-hmm. You know, you got this group of people that got this boat up and running. That's your rider dies because that's their boat. Yeah. It's Scientology's boat, you know, and this is where you start looking into the psychology of all this. Like, yeah, like he was evading and just said, let's go yeah. on the river or, you know, yeah. let's let's go on on the ocean. Yeah. Because I can't get arrested in international waters. Yeah. I can't give me shit out here. Yeah. But. This is where the cult part of it starts taking steam. Mm -hmm. You get people that, you know, oh, I'm going to work on a sea org. I'm going to be on this fucking boat. And then they walk out and they see this fucking rust bucket shit thing. And they're like, well, I got to stay out here. Yeah. And there's a reason they got to stay out there. Let's talk about that for a second. They sign a billion year contract. They do. Yeah. A yeah. billion year contract. And it's your dedication to, yes. you know, being out there. But more so, here's the bullshit thing you do. <clears throat> and this is the same thing that Jones did with Jonestown. Mm -hmm. He took their passports. Yes. He took their identification. Yep. So here you are on this boat. Yep. With no options. It's Lord of the Flies, basically. Yeah. Because you've got the structure in here. Mm -hmm. The structure's already set. Yeah. And you can't talk against the leader. No. You can't talk against the idea. You can't talk against the leader's family either. No, the leader, yep. the leader's family, or the idea of why mm -hmm. you're all there. Yep. Can't talk about nope. it. Because here's the thing. You get punished for that. Yes. And you can't leave because right. you left from England. 
Right. And you're over in Paraguay. Yeah. You know, or Who some knows where weird you place. Yeah. You know, and, and you're stuck there. Yep. You know, so you're on the boat and mm-hmm. you got to figure out how to stay alive on the on boat. On the boat. So you then make every it work. So everybody gets institutionalized. Yeah. You become the family. You become the whole thing because you're in it together. Mm-hmm. So the leader thinks it's a great idea because he's living in some awesome room right. that he's got cooks for him and he right. can eat whatever the fuck he <clears throat> wants. Yeah. He's not living by the rules that everyone else is living, no. you know, but he's the leader. And this is who's not even the president yeah. anymore. And this is a buildup. If you're if yeah. you're asking who the fuck would follow fall for this. That's what we're saving for the end. Yeah. Because there, there's people that fall for this. Yeah. They, they did. There's people that in big were amounts. All, the, all too happy to be like, please, sir, may I have another? Yeah. So the Enchanter sailed in the new year with a hired skipper and a novice crew of four Scientologists, including Downsborough, the chick mm-hmm. who was the uh, education chick. Yeah. This was a rather uneventful trip, apart from losing most of the fuel somewhere off the coast of Portugal. After putting in briefly at Oporto, the Enchanter arrived safely in Gibraltar, only to discover that there was no room in the ways. In other words, the boat was too big. They couldn't yeah. get in. Yeah. A message arrived from Hubbard from a, a Hubbard aide in Tangier saying that he was ill and to continue to Las Plamas in the Canary Islands. So the Enchanter and her crew arrived in Las Plamas just as Hubbard himself was arriving at the airport and they picked him up from customs and got him situated in a hotel. Virginia went to see him the next day to see how he was doing, as he had seemed quite unwell. He had scores of medications about his room, and she was appalled, especially with his railing against drugs and the medical profession. Yeah. He was in a depressive state and told Virginia he had no more gains to be made and he wanted to die. At the same time as this incident an announcement was being made, quote, Hubbard had completed a research accomplishment of immense magnitude, end quote. This accomplishment was described as, quote, the wall of fire, end quote. This would be OT3, Operating Thetan 3 material, in which were contained the secrets of a disaster which resulted in decay of life as we know it in this sector of the galaxy. Hubbard was said to be the first person in millions of years to map a precise route through the wall of fire. Having done so, his OT power had to be increased to such an extent that he was at grave risk for accidental injury to his body. Indeed, he had broken his back, a knee, and an arm during the course of his research. Round the bomb. Yeah. That being said... Virginia said she observed no such broken limbs, but realized that he was in desperate need of care. So the teacher moved into the adjoining room to serve as his nurse. Why not? She can fix a boat, be a nurse. She knew all the things. Well, they're Scientologists, babe. Well, she cooked his food for him and worked to get him off his countless medications. Mm. And uh, she was able- So wait, wait, Scientology didn't work? He needed this other person to do it. Weird. Here's the thing. Round the bomb. He was, he, anytime he got hurt, he would immediately resort to medical attention. Medical attention. It's hysterical. It really is. And all of his diehards are like, where's Ron? Why? Where's Ron? Yeah, what? Where'd he go? 
And they always had some sort of yeah. excuse. Yeah. Oh, he's going somewhere. Yeah. The only the inner circle knew that he was all this stuff. Yeah. And that's why I got to laugh is like. And even they were like, I guess it's okay. You know? Oh, no. They, they, you, you hear the written accounts of it. Mm-hmm. The diaries of people that have gone out yeah. or testimonials. And they're all like, yeah, that really, I had conflict with that. Yeah. But, but I believed in the cause. And again, we're going to get into that later, but that's the, that's the idea of it. They would see all this. They'd see it with their own eyes and they'd say, I believe in the cause. Yes. She did persuade him that there was still much left for him to do. Mm. Meanwhile, he slept a lot and refused to get out of bed. She didn't know what drugs he was taking, but they weren't like making him high. But she knew he had, she had to get him off of them. And when she discussed it with him, he was like, all right, yeah, sure, whatever. So she got him to read his three weeks worth of mail that he had neglected. Mm. He eventually got out of bed. Oh, good for him. He went for some walks. And then he seemed to remember, oh, yeah, I bought a couple boats, one of which is actually like here and shit. So turns out being on the Enchanter was just the medicine that he needed. Yeah. Yeah. Scientology. Boom. Done. Dunzo. Yeah. He would take the Enchanter out on extended cruises around the Canary Islands to search for gold he had buried in previous lives. Quote, he drew little maps for us, said Virginia, and would be sent off to dig for buried treasure. He told us he was hoping to replace the Enchanter's ballast with solid gold. I thought it was great fun. The best show on earth. Did they find anything? No. Nowhere. Nowhere did they find a single thing. So, so. But look at all the team building that happened. I guess. You know? I guess. Jeez. So these activities were supposed to be a closely guarded secret, and Hubbard insisted on the use of elaborate codes in the Sea Org communications. So while in us in Las Plamas, he also developed phobias about dust and smells, which were behind his frequent explosive temper tantrums. Yeah. God, he has quite the high maintenance drama queen. Yeah. His yeah. most common complaint was that his clothes smelled of soap. Okay. Yeah. Or he was being choked by dust that only he could detect. Yeah. No matter how frequently the decks of the Enchanter were scrubbed, it was never clean enough for the Commodore. So in April of 67, the Avon River steamed into Las Plamas Harbor. Captain John Jones described the trip as the strangest of his life. Apart from the chief engineer, Jones was the only professional seaman on board. Can you pause there for a moment? Mm-hmm. Because I felt for this man so I felt bad. so hard. Reading the guy. book, I, I, I'm telling you, if you want to feel sorry for anyone in your life, read Bareface Messiah. Yeah. And just pay attention to this poor soul. Yeah. Who got on the ship as captain. Yeah. And had to deal with this rat fucking race. Yeah. On there. Unreal. My crew were 16 men and four women Scientologists who wouldn't have known a trawler from a tram car. Upon signing, Captain Jones was informed he would be expected to run the ship according to the rules of the org book, a sailing manual by the founder of the church in Scientology, and therefore considered by Scientologists to be infallible gospel. Quote, I was instructed not to use the electrical equipment apart from lights, radio, and direction finder. We had radar and other advanced equipment, which I was not allowed to use. 
I was told it was all in the org book, which was to be obeyed without question, end quote. Following said manual, the Avon River bumped the dock and hull as she was getting underway and had barely left the harbor estuary before the Scientologist navigator, using the navigational system advocated by Hubbard, confessed he was lost. So the captain said, quote, I stuck to my watch and my sextant, sextant, said Jones, so at least I knew where we were. Yeah. At Las Plamas, the Avon River was hauled up on the slips recently vacated by the Enchanter and prepared for a major refit. A working party of Bright-Eyed Sea Project members had already arrived in the Canaries. They saw an old, worn-out, oil-soaked, rust-flaked steam trawler. Their job was to give her a complete overhaul. They sandblasted her from stem to stern, painted her, put bunks in what had been the rope locker, converted the liver oil boiling room into additional accommodation, put decks in the cargo holds to make space for offices, and LRH designed a number of improvements, a large rudder and a system of lifts to hoist small boats aboard. Hubbard stopped by every couple of days to check on their progress, but it was never fast enough, and more Sea Org members were being flown into Las Plamas to join the workforce. They climbed aboard using a long, shaky ladder to get up to the deck. As they got over the side, they saw everything was covered in sand from the sandblasting, and there were people sleeping on the sand from exhaustion. So these people who are working incessantly on this boat to get it up and going, and it's not quick enough, and it's not fast enough, and they're not doing it right, are so exhausted that they just drop where they are and sleep. Even though Hubbard had resigned... As president of the Church of Scientology, the flow of edicts continued uninterrupted, and he reminded Scientologists of the penalties for lower conditions in a policy letter dictated at Villa Estrella in Las Plamas. He found time also to record a tape lecture in which he warned of a worldwide conspiracy to destroy Scientology. Mary Sue... Mrs. Mrs. LRH, (laughs) ever resourceful, had traced the supposed conspiracy to the very highest levels to a cabal of international bankers and newspaper barons sufficiently powerful to control many heads of state, among them British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. No, it's not the incessant letters that he sends to the FBI or the weird shit that he and his Scientologists do in all these places that's <laughs> getting them this negative attention. Yeah. No, no, it's all a conspiracy to get rid of Scientology. It has nothing to do with the fact that everybody, aside from Scientologists, knows that he is batshit fucking crazy. No, and this is where you get the thought control points coming into play here. So, again, being this master of embellishment and this teller of tall tales, you know, just lifting him up to be important, Mm -hmm. experienced, and special, um, he starts developing these conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. And originally, the primary targets of the conspiracy theories were the medical profession and the psychiatrists. Yes. Because they reject the Dianetics in 1950. Yes. Hubbard, yep. So Hubbard begins to start seeing threats everywhere. And he would eventually. He'd had the World Bank, the Rockefeller, CIA, FBI, IRS, all these government-run organizations, Mm -hmm. you know, including the ones you're you're going Mm -hmm. at, along with the media. And they're basically this list of enemies he has. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so it's not just external was the only threats, though, either. No. He believed there were a lot of internal enemies, too. Mm-hmm. And this is where you see this paranoid schizophrenia of him. Yeah. Is running really true on the Sea Org. Um, so not just the internal enemies, but a lot of them were ones that work closely with him. Yeah. And so he repeated over and over and over again that there's this high level conspiracy. It's to keep mankind enslaved and that he and these dedicated followers would be the only hope to save every man, every woman, every child from a fate worse than death. And he constantly wrote about destroying these enemies. Yes, he did. You know, so this is where, again, it really just starts falling apart. And the destruction of these uh, enemies is what he would later develop into his fair game policies. Yeah, this would be the fair game Mm -hmm. bit. But also what you're seeing is this thought cycle that regenerates itself. Mm -hmm. So it's, oh, we must destroy these people. We must destroy these enemies. So you go and destroy them. Well, then these people are like, what the fuck are you doing to us, man? Yeah. You know? We didn't so, do anything. So they get this reputation all over the world. Yes. Every harbor yes. starts knowing about these guys because yeah. other boats talk. Yeah. Other ports talk. Yep. And they just say, hey, look, when these guys show up, man, just don't even let them in. Yeah. Don't do anything. They're they're poison. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they'll go to a port. They're starving. They've yep. been like living the shittiest life in the world mm-hmm. on a boat. Yeah. They're just looking for supplies. And they're just looking for supplies. And they're looking for whatever. Away from and they're port getting after turned port. away. And L. Ron Hubbard's like, see, man, told you. Yeah. Yep. And they're like, those motherfuckers, mm-hmm. you know, and just boom, around and around and around and around. And then internally, it's getting even worse. They had this thing called RPF. Mm-hmm. It's a rehabilitation project force. And this became a like severe program for those that failed him yes. on the boat. Yes. So being assigned to this was literally considered a, a terrible disgrace. It's the worst disgrace. thing that, that could happen, yeah. So it was for uh, those that messed up assignments, uh, had bad intentions towards Scientology and or Hubbard himself. They were sent to the lower hold and they were not let out until they had been rehabilitated. Yep. Re- or rehabilitated. They slept, they ate, they worked and studied in this tiny cramped space and it was out of the sight of any other crew. Just totally like the... just. Like the shit. Yeah. Like solitary confinement. Yeah. But they were just all together. They were forbidden to communicate with anyone outside the lower hold, including their spouses. And they had to redeem themselves by confessing their crimes and evil intentions in order to join the regular crew. Yeah. So now what you got on this boat is you got people kind of repeat it quick. Mm-hmm. You're you get into the Scientology. You got all this fucking shit pounded into your head. Right. Now you want to go to the Sea Org because, man, that's what yeah. you do. Yeah. And this is like, the you know, you're the elite. They, they keep telling you yeah. how how important you, this you're, is. You're and the like, elite. This is the upper echelon yeah. of Scientology. You're the elite. Yeah. And so now what you have is you go on and this boat's shit. And right. Everywhere you go, nobody wants to fucking be with you. And you get pounded that other psychology to see. I was right. The world is yeah. exactly what I told you it was. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and they pound that into your head. And then you create this RPF place where basically you're sitting there on the boat and you're like, you know what? It's not even doing all of this other stuff. Right. It's not even the goal is to stay out of RPF. That's the primary objective of everyone on the boat. Mm -hmm. This was all of them. This was Apollo. This is the one you're talking about. And Apollo ended up being the one that 
yeah. he got on him was, you know, that was before they terminated it down. But this is the thought control in that. Now you're sitting there going through every day saying, all right, my goal today is to stay out of the rehabilitation project force. Right. That's all. Mm-hmm. So I do everything I'm told. I make sure everything's yep. fine. Put your head down and just work. And then he had this little Hitler youth called the messengers. Yep. They're around there and they were young kids because mm-hmm. you can't talk bad about young kids. Nope. That's how Hitler young looked girls. at girls. Well, girls and boys, but but mostly girls. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what Hitler did because Hitler's like you can't disobey children. Nope. If you if you say something offensive to a child, you're you're a monster. Mm-hmm. You know. So he had yeah. that around there, and these were the fucking narks yep. all over the boat. And if they just even heard a little whisper of you saying, "Jesus, Anything. this is stupid," yeah. or blah blah blah, you know, all blah blah blah, and bang in the hold. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so you'd say, well, Jesus, uh, you know, why wouldn't there be a mutiny at some point? And you'd think so. And then he'd throw these little, little pieces of cheese out and uh, they would do like movie night. Yeah. You know, and they all yep. wanted to watch like Patton or something like mm-hmm. that. And he wanted to watch Patton. And then they realized they didn't have the right projector because it was filmed in like a wide angle yeah. and they didn't have that. So he goes and he gives them a hundred bucks to go and get it because he wants to watch it. Yeah. And now he's watching it. And then that's where they sit there and they're like, oh, He's generous. Yeah. He loves us, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just this battered wife syndrome. Yeah. Over and Pretty over much, and over yeah. again. And then um, I, don't, I could continue to the under. Yeah. So, so 1974, he has his first heart attack and no one on the outside of his uh, innermost circle knew this at the time. Only a few trusted aides and messengers knew he was in the hospital mm-hmm. and it would have shattered the world of Scientology if the man who had caused over life and death uh, and who developed this technology to cure every imaginable, you know, yeah. imaginable ill of mankind had suffered a debilitating heart attack. He was chronically overweight. He smoked at least two packs of unfiltered uh, cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. And this was the exit strategy to get off the Apollo. Scientology will tell you that um, the claim was to covertly find this base in USA and it's because the functions and the personnel were exceeding the ship. Mm-hmm. There was too many people yeah. on the ship and it was too much stuff. But the real reason was uh, to relocate where good hospitals and healthcare existed. Yes. You know, so the misdirection is everywhere in Scientology. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It is. We'll pick marriage for just a moment here. Yeah. The sanctity of marriage and the importance of family are threaded throughout Hubbard's writings. However, his behavior would suggest something else. He had abandoned his first wife, Polly, yep. and their two eldest children to begin an affair with another woman, yep. Sarah. Yeah. He then abandoned her and their daughter, Alexis, to marry Mary Sue. Yes. In fact, in one of Hubbard's only TV interviews, he denied that he ever married Sarah and that he was uh, Alexis' Alexis's father. father. He yeah. denied it. Yep. However, in his second book, Science of Survival, he dedicated it to Alexis. <laughs> You don't have to dig deep for this. It's it's all over. Yeah. So the hysterical part is one look at Alexis too, and there's no doubt on who her oh, father yeah, no. is. No. I mean, it's, you know. All so, his kids have the the flaming oh, yeah. red, red hair. Yeah. So does she. Yeah. And Brown somebody, the bomb. Yeah. Somebody else was saying that, you know, she, she very much looked like him. So mm-hmm. she asked him and he was like, no. Yeah, no. No, no. I'm not. And she was like, all right, fine, whatever. You're yeah. dead to me. So Scientology claims to be all about family and mm-hmm. maintaining s- successful marriages. It even offers introductory courses designed to attract new people based on these themes. Mm-hmm. I've seen them. 
But uh, Scientology's approach to marriage and family, as with everything else, is conditioned upon what is best for the organization. Right. And that's the root of all of it right yep. there. You know, Women in the Sea Org weren't allowed, if, even if they were married, to get pregnant because yeah. children were not allowed on the ship, even though his children were. Yeah. But they just couldn't yeah. take care of kids. I mean. No. So if a, well, and there's another part of that too. Yeah. Um, if a spouse is no longer committed and cannot be brought back on board, the remaining Scientologist is expected to divorce that partner. Correct. So the reason they can't have kids on there is because a mother's love for their child is a real hard thing to disrupt. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, where Scientology really gets its trance-like state and hooks into people. Yeah. Because they take their kids right away from them. They do. And they have them in, you know, a um, school, you know. Yeah. And, and they, well, they have like a Scientology like nursery or whatever. No, but and I they, mean like, yeah. but they're away. Yeah. Like, uh, they aren't. They, states away. Yeah. You know, like yep. they just. They are not with their parents. Raised without their parents, you know. And I mean, it's just crazy. You know, so you get into this. This is where I was kind of leading where, you know, you're like, how the hell do you fall for all this yes. stuff? And this is where we're going to come up. If you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard these uh, around and I've went into them in depth quite a bit on the earlier ones. But yes. I figured, you know what, that's uh, like a year ago. Right. It's not I, a bad idea to. I thought I'd rehash these because the Sea Org really highlights every yes. single one of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go in them in order. So you got cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And cognitive dissonance is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. And that's a that's a fifty dollar explanation, mm -hmm. but in application, here's what it would be. There's a meme, and it's I just showed it to you. I was going to use a different example, but this one's like takes the cake. The the meme is, uh, it's like Tent City in San Francisco. Yep. And it has all these tents and garbage mm -hmm. all over the place. And somebody says, well, it's a good thing California bans straws. Yeah. You know, so now if you were to show that to someone in California and an environmentalist, and there's two choices you could do there. You could say, yeah, that is stupid. Mm -hmm. Or you defend it. Right. And you're defending why. Why the plastic drinking why straw the plastic is so bad. Why the plastic drinking straw was so bad. And you're pushing that other bit of it away because it yeah. goes against your core belief. Yes. So let's apply this to Scientology. You're in Scientology. You want to go to the Sea Org. You hop onto the boat and it's a fucking mess. Yeah. It's nothing like it could. You still have your passport in hand. Mm -hmm. But you sit there and you say the, the cause is... The cause is still important. Right. And you overlook all that stuff. Because you go the cause onto the, is still important. You go onto the boat and you see him with all these medications and mm -hmm. all that stuff. The cause is more important. Mm -hmm. So now you're throwing the cause over everything that you believed in. You were initially under the belief that you didn't need any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. All this stuff is, it's, it's, it's threatening to you. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to destroy you. But you see the leader doing it. And But nope, the cause. Yep. He's only human. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. And you start coming up with these excuses to defend your statement when those things conflict directly right. with your beliefs. Yep. And that's cognitive dissonance. So now you ask, how the hell does everybody fall in with this? Mm -hmm. And that's the Solomon Ash experiment. Yes. And the Solomon Ash ex experiment, let me sharpen, sharpen up here. Uh. 
So you basically had Solomon Ash, and I mean, the amazing part is, is uh, the conformity experiment is what it's called. Yeah. Ash conformity line experiment to be particular. Uh, that actually started um, with this one called uh, Sheriff's, which was a 1935 conformity uh, experiment. And there was kind of this like no correct answer type thing. Mm-hmm. And how could we be sure that a, a person conformed when there was no correct answer? And so Ash in 1951 devised what is now regarded as a classic experiment in social psychology, whereby um, there's an obvious, obvious answer to align judgment tasks. So if the participant gave an incorrect answer, it would be clear that this was due to group pressure. Right. That's what they were yeah. trying to complete. So what he did is he got, you know, like five, six people. There was, uh, it, it's funny, this experiment, like five, six people, but 10 people, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The more it's the same result. And what you have is these uh, these stooges, these people that are in on it. Yeah. And then you have Solomon Ash, and he's in on it too. Yeah. Then you have the one innocent participant that's in this. Mm-hmm. And what they would have is a board with these lines. Right. And there would be an A line, a B line, and a C line. The A would be really long, the B would be medium length, and the C would be short. And neither of these lines looked remotely close to each other. Right. They yes. were very individual. And then what they would go, they do is they'd go through and they would have the target line and then they would start and they'd say, oh, that's a B and it's correct. Right. And they go through the line. Yep. That's a B, blah, blah, blah. Then they'd go through and the ones that were in on it would choose the wrong line. Right. On purpose. On purpose. Yes. And they'd go through and it'd be, you know, oh, that line's short and it's the long line. That's the target line. And nope, that's short. That's short. That's short. Now, the crazy part is... Uh, the one guy who wasn't in on it. The, well, it, what the whole point of it is, is, you know, does the one person conform mm-hmm. or do they they stand up for themselves, right. basically? So the findings were incredible. Ash measured the number of times each participant conformed to the majority view. Yep. On average, this is average, mm-hmm. one-third, 32%. Of the participants who were placed in this situation went along and conformed with the clearly incorrect majority on the critical trials. Over the 12 critical trials, 75% of the participants conformed at least once Mm -hmm. and 25% never conformed. Right. So I'm going to put a pin in that. Okay. In the control group with no pressure to conform, Mm -hmm. basically everybody's on their own. Less than 1% of the participants gave the wrong answer. Right. That's the power of a group. Yeah. It's amazing. And people need to really understand that because you got to ask yourself, and it's the same thing with the Sea Org. Why did the participants conform so readily? When they were interviewed after the experiment, most of them said that they did not really believe their conforming answers, but had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or thought peculiar. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy, crazy thing. A few of them said that they really did believe the group's answers were correct. That, for me, is the scariest part. That's the scary part. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I'll tie all this in in the end, but putting it, you know, spreading it out, there's a reason for this. So, apparently, people conform for two main reasons. 
And it's because they want to fit in with the group that's called normative influence. Mm -hmm. And because they believe the group is better informed than they are, that's informational influence. Mm -hmm. So normative influences, they just want to fit in. Right. Informational influences, they believe that that group is more informed than they are. So that's the ones that are not even researching anything. They're not yeah. even looking into it. It's just blind trust. Mm -hmm. So you start looking around yourself and this stuff starts to make sense. Yeah. Because they do this test every 10 years mm -hmm. and it's the same results. Yeah. So it doesn't matter which generation you're from. Nope. It doesn't matter which demographic you're from. They've nope. done it with blue collar. They've mm -hmm. done it with white collar. Mm -hmm. They've done it with everybody. Mm -hmm. Every 10 years, same exact numbers. Yeah. Or very similar. Yes. I mean, it's it's not worth even get, getting crazy about it. And um, it's uh, it's tough. You know, in the beginning, all the participants were male students who all belonged in the same age group. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of labeling that. They were like, oh, you know, it's a bias sample, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But every 10 years they do it and they spread it out in different ways. And and here you are, you know. And then the, the big thing is, is you throw that even more, uh, you know, his results and conclusions on that. Um, he found that group size influenced whether subjects conform. So the bigger the group, the, the more, more people were going to fall in. The yep. bigger the majority of the group, um, the more people conformed, but only up to a certain point. And then with uh, one other person in the group, uh, like the Confederate, the conformity was 3%. But two others increased it to 13. You know, it doesn't take much, just a, a little shift. And then three or more of the Confederate group, you know, so if you had one person, like just one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. the group conformity was 3%. I'll disagree with you, mm -hmm. but then add two others into it and it went up 13% right. the conformity. And then with three or more, it was 32%. So basically three or more and yeah. you're, you got something rolling. The optimum conform, uh, conformity effects, 32% were found with a majority of three, Increasing the size of the majority beyond three did not increase the levels of conformity found. Okay. So they suggest that people might suspect collusion if the majority r rises beyond three or four. Right. You know, you got to understand, like, there's people that have studied this up. Governments. Yeah. Political groups and all that stuff. They know how your brain works. Yeah. Way on a different level than mm -hmm. you do. This is what marketing people talk yeah. about. And, and corporations to sell you soda and shit. And, uh. They found in 1995, the most robust finding is that conformity reaches its full extent with a three to five person majority. And basically additional members have little effect. So that's, mm -hmm. that's how they work with that. So you're working on these boats, you're working on small teams. Right. Yeah. And when you bring one extra person in there, you're just going to fall in. Yeah. It's kind of like starting a new job. You're yeah. just going to fall in with the group because it's you and four other people. You yep. don't want to rock the boat. You rock the group. You rock the boat later, mm -hmm. you know, but if you had punishment staring in your face at yeah. that, which gets back to the being dropped to the hold and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And then, you know, you say, Hey, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to just stay in my lane. I ain't going to mess around. And lack of group unanimity uh, presents, you know, it's a presence of an ally. So as conformity drops with five members or more, it may be that the it's the the size of the group because you could build an ally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's majority rules. So now you've got what's also known as the Milgram experiment, and this is actually um, you know a famous study uh, carried out by Stanley Milgram, 
uh, a psychologist at uh, Yale University. This is 1963. And he was examining justifications for acts of genocide offered by those accused at the World War II Nuremberg uh, Mm -hmm. War Criminal Trials. And their defense was always based on obedience, that they were just following orders from their superiors. Because back in World War II where they had the Nuremberg Trials, Everybody, you know, wanted heads to roll. They wanted yep. things to go. And everybody's like, hey, I was just following orders. Yeah. And it was the most unsuccessful attempt at going through. They had all this yes. steam that they were going to, people were going to pay for this. People were going to be Massive worldwide and then, atrocity. And then it fell down through this. So so he was figuring out how the hell is this going to work? So he got what was called a learner who was in on it, uh, was taken into a room and had electrodes attached to his arms. Then there was a teacher and a researcher that went into a room the next door that contained an electric shock generator and a row of switches marked from 15 volts, a slight shock to 375 volts. Uh, that would be a severe shock yeah. to 450 volts, which will kill someone. Yes. So you have, again, the learner who's in the separate room and you have the researcher and you have the teacher, the researcher's not in on it. The right. teacher and the learner are. And basically the aim was to see how far people would go in obeying an instruction if it involved harming another person. That's the criteria. So the volunteers were recruited. They get in. The participants, 40 males, aged between 20 and 50. And their jobs ranged from unskilled to professional. And they were paid uh, four fifty just for showing up. Right. That's $4.50. Yes. <laughs> so they go through. They drew straws to determine their roles, whether Mm -hmm. they be a learner or a teacher, but that was fixed. So the Confederate was always the learner. Uh, There was always an experimenter dressed up in a gray lab coat, and uh, that was played by an actor. Milgram wasn't in this at all. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the two rooms were used, and you had the one with the learner in the electric electric chair, and you had the other, uh, the teacher and experimenter, in with the shock generator. So then what they would do is... uh, they would learn this list of word pairs uh, for them to learn. The teacher tests them by naming the word and asking the learner to recall its partner pair from a list of four possible choices. The teacher is told to administer an electric shock every time the learner makes a mistake, increasing the level of shock each time. There were 30 switches on the shock generator, which I put it. So the learner gave mainly wrong answers on purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. And for each of these, the teacher gave him an electric shock. When the teacher refused to administer a shock, you know, because you'd yeah. be like, look, I don't want to do this, you know, at all. The, experiner, the experimenter was to give a series of orders or, or what are known as prods to ensure yeah. that they continue. And there were four prods. And if one was not obeyed, then the experimenter read out the next prod and right. so on. So the four were these. Number one, please continue. If you said, no, I don't want to do this yeah. anymore. Number two, the experiment requires you to continue. No, look, I still don't want to do it. Number three, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Nope, I don't want to do it. Prod number four, you have no other choice but to continue. The results, which are devastating to hear. 65%, two-thirds of participants continued to the highest level of 450 volts. Mm -hmm. It's killing somebody. All the participants, every single one of them, uh, continued to 300 volts. That's severe damage. Milgram did more than one experiment, 
He carried out 18 variations of his study. All he did was alter the situation to see how this affected obedience. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion on this is the individual explanation for the behavior of the participants would be that it was something about them as people that caused them to obey. But a more realistic explanation is that the situation they were in influenced them and caused them to behave in the way they did. Some of the aspects of the situation that may have influenced their behavior included the formality of the location, the behavior of the experimenter, and the fact that it was an experiment for which they had volunteered and had been paid. Ordinary people are likely to follow orders given by an authority figure, even to the extent of killing an innocent human being. Obedience to authority is ingrained in us all from the way we are brought up. People tend to obey orders from other people if they recognize their authority as morally right and or legally based. This response to legitimate authority is learned in a variety of situations. For example, in school, family, and workplace. Milgram summed up the article, uh, The Perils of Obedience, wrote in 1974, Mm -hmm writing, the legal and philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous import, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered uh, ordered to by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subjects, the participants. Strongest moral imperatives against hurting others and with the subjects, the participants, ears ringing with screams of victims. Yes. So they could hear the screams. They could hear everything. And authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. And his agency theory on all this is he suggests that people have two states of behavior when they're in a social situation. One is called the autonomous state. People direct their own actions and they take responsibility for the results of those actions. That's the one we'd all like to be in. Yeah. That, the agentics, uh, agentic state. People allow others to direct their actions and then pass off the responsibility for the consequences to the person giving the orders. And in other words, they act as agents for another person's yep. will. Milgram suggested that two things must be in place for a person to enter the agentic state. Number one, the person giving the orders is perceived as being qualified to direct other people's behavior. That is... They are seen as legitimate. Right. Number two, the person being ordered is about uh, the person being ordered about is able to believe that the authority will accept responsibility for what happens. Agency theory says that people will obey an authority when they believe that the authority will take responsibility for the consequences of their actions. This is supported by some of uh, some aspects of Milgram's evidence. For example, when participants were reminded that they had responsibility for their own actions, almost none of them were prepared to obey. Mm-hmm. The moment the responsibility is on you, you're like, nope, yeah, I'm not doing this. But in contrast, many participants who were refusing to go on did so if the experimenter said that he would take responsibility. Yeah. They were all in. They've done variations on this. They've done two yep. teacher 
They've done uh, touch proximity location, social support conditions, absent experimenter conditions. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was, the it was same. the same, Yeah, you know, and um, you know, they talk about his study. It was all male. Do they find the findings chancer, uh transfer to females? Uh, you know, and, and basically the sample was self-selected. Uh, they also had this kind of typical volunteer uh, possibility. He goes, yet yeah, total of 636 participants were studied or were tested in 18 separate experiments across the New Haven area, which was seen as being reasonably representative of like your typical yeah. American town. The findings have been replicated in a variety of cultures and most lead to the same conclusions as Milgram's original study. And in some cases, even higher obedience races, yeah. uh, um, rates. rates. So, you know, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's really crazy. You sit here and you ask like, how so the that's hell? why they just sit back and take the abuse. Yeah. How, how the hell does this happen? So you, you put cognitive dissonance together to get yeah. you in there. Yep. That's your, that's your gateway drug, mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance. You're going, you're creating excuses for this condition for itself. And, and then when you're in there, you're in the conformity Yep. and, and you've got to be in with the group, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and being in that group, you're, you're going to literally go against reality. Yeah. You're going to go against something. You're that's, just going to fall in. You're just going to fall in mm -hmm. and on something that, you know, deep down isn't even true, right. you know, and then on top of all that, you have this leadership yeah. uh, arc. Yeah. You know, I can and the put, authority, you know, and the authority tier. Yeah. It's more of a tier than anything. Mm -hmm. You have this authority tier and then you, you have this situation where, yeah, you have to get into this because you can't challenge authority. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just say it for what it is. You can't challenge authority. There's only a small percentage you can. Yeah. And then you look at that and now you've got the group conformity and all that. See, these people are against you. Right. And then you roll it all around. So to think that Scientology is the only one doing this, no freaking no. way. It's everywhere you look. Yeah. It's literally peeling back the the fog from all this and just seeing all that. And yeah. again, if you want to check out more information on it, I urge you to do it. Mm -hmm. Cognitive dissonance, Solomon Ash, and Milgram. Yep. You know, I mean, just unfreaking real. Stanley, uh, Stanley Milgram. Yep. And this is how you get this crap. It's in the biology. It really is. And this is why you've seen it over and, and over, over and, and over, over again. again. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, year 100, 2000 BC. Doesn't matter. 1850 doesn't or 2023. Matter. You know, you're just going to see it all over. And the more people are not in touch with themselves and not in touch with their own spirituality and have themselves grounded yeah. This is why it's so important to have yourself grounded. Yes. Because if you're not grounded and you're seeking it in other shapes and forms. Yeah. You've got to ask yourself it why. It gets messy. Why, why are you looking for this somewhere else? Yeah. What is missing and from it, you? And it gets messy. And then yeah. you really got to ask yourself the bold question or, or family members have to ask the bold question. If they, if you go and do this thing, is it going to fix Whatever what you were the after? perceived yeah, Problem like, is, is that going to yeah. fix, is everything okay? And generally, 99% of the time, it's never one thing. It's If you paint green paint on a dead leaf, 
that leaf is still, still dead. dead. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter how you gussy it up. No, that's a really, really great point. Yeah. God, I love you. What do we got coming up next? I know. Holy Moses. I'm pretty excited. You got to be excited. I really, really am. Yeah. We are going to tackle La Llorona. I know. I know. I love it. It's. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, with that being said, rule number one. No Ouija boards. Number two. No dolls. Three. No capes. Four. No blood rituals. Five. No cults. Satanic or otherwise. No, six. No apathy. You need to act to help enact a positive change in this world. Yeah. yeah. You know, small steps. Buy somebody's coffee. Yeah. You know. Give a person a compliment. Yeah. That's all. Say hi. Yeah. Yeah. Smile and wave. Yeah. Yeah. Cost you nothing. When somebody looks at you and says, hey, how's it going? Just say, oh, good. Thanks. Yeah. Instead of just looking straight forward and ignoring that person. And looking through them like they're not there. I don't know how people fucking do that. (laughs) Next. Don't engage with the black-eyed children, mm. the black-eyed people. Well, yeah. I mean, generally anything with black eyes. Yeah. If if there's no iris, yeah. it's all just pupil. Yeah, maybe and if, just go. If you don't know what that is, check our back catalog. Yes. We did a whole episode we on did. the black-eyed children at that we time. Did. And we've, we did. We have since learned that it's not just it's black-eyed not just children. children. No, no. No. There's a, a wide... I don't know which is creepier. Mm. You know? The know. black-eyed kids... One of us, one of us. Especially if you got like six or seven. Yeah. Actually two. Well, according to the Solomon Ash thing, it's three. Three. Yeah. Yeah, three. Three is when you're like, okay. That's generally how it is. They they are in groups of three. Yeah. Just like the mirrored men. Yeah. Well, you even look at that, like say somebody were to pull up and kidnap you. You know, if it's one person, you're like, hey, I actually got a chance with this. Yeah. But three, (laughs) you're like, crap. You know, I got a knife. You're already, yeah, you're already <laughs> trying to figure, you know, how you're going to work your way through it. But yeah. Next one. Just listen. Yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, we uh, thank you so much every single week for coming in to tune in and listen to us. Yeah. Um, again, if you can rate and review uh, our podcast, we greatly appreciate it. Please Especially thank you. on uh, iTunes and Spotify. That seems yeah. to be the two... Uh, Spots where it helps out in the ratings and getting uh, our uh, ourselves looked at looked at by others. Yeah. Um, but it, the best thing you can do is share uh, share the podcast with a friend. Yep. You know that's uh, how we've gotten where we are, and we're really appreciative of it. So we are. With that being said, we hope you have an amazing day, a lovely week. Please, for the love of God, make good choices. Yeah. Stick to your guns, folks. Later. 